So I'm going to start with a story from uh, Jeff Forbes. He's a worship leader at Faith Center. He's the head guy at Southside of Heaven downtown. If you don't know Southside, you need to know Southside. They're an awesome group of people. I don't know everybody there, but I know a lot of the leadership in that group, and it's fantastic. They do celebrate recovery for adults. They do recovery for teens. They have a Friday night service and a Sunday night service. They're just great people doing a great work for the Lord. But Pastor Jeffrey, if you know him, you'll know how he told this story. But anyway, he has connections in Romania that he goes back repeatedly there, adopted a daughter from Romania, and... And they have some ministry connections, and he's actually either there right now or leaving in a day or two to go. And he told me this story to us at the pastor's prayer. He told us this uh, trip that he took to Romania a year or two ago, and and they drove out of the city a seven-hour drive to a monastery. He said it was seven hours out of the city. The last two hours of the drive was up a mountain gravel road to literally the end of a dead-end road where there was a monastery and the road quit. And it was a Romanian Orthodox Catholic monastery. These monks live up there and they do what monks do. They garden and they pray and they worship and and they do the same thing every day. And he said it was a fascinating experience having one of the monks lead them through the, you know, as a tour guide of the monastery and tell them what they're doing. Most of the guys are off either praying or reading in their own little room or, you know, they may be tending the garden or whatever and they're looking at all. And he said, unconsciously, he didn't mean to think it, but he unconsciously is thinking this is really cool it's really quaint it's very interesting but what are these guys really doing for god i mean they're up here seven hours from anybody else living on the end of a dead-end road praying all day the same prayers every day walking around with their censors you know throwing their incense around and and really what are they doing I am a pastor in LaGrande, and I am setting people free from drugs and alcohol, and I'm a busy guy, and I got all this work to do, and I am serving the kingdom. Of course, he didn't think any of that in those words, but he said as they go through the tour, and they're looking at everybody, and he's learning, and it's very interesting, but he just has that unconscious thing in the back of his heart. And, and then he notices that all the other monks, if you know Jeffrey, you know how he said this, but all the other monks had this really cool hat, and the, our tour guide did not have a cool hat. And he said, and I wanted to get one of those cool hats. Where do I get one of those cool hats? And why don't you have one of those cool hats? And if you know what Orthodox priests wear, you know it's kind of this four-leaf clover thing, that the hat that they wear. So the guy says to them, he says, well, the monks wear the hat. I am not actually a monk yet. I'm still in training. I have not yet been approved to join the brotherhood because I don't pray enough. Uh, they won't accept me. And Jeff said, well, how long do you pray a day? He said, well, I'm only up to six hours right now. I can't be initiated as a monk because I don't pray enough. I only pray six hours a day, and eight is the minimum. And Jeff told us, he said, my heart, how dare I thought I was serving God and accomplishing things for the kingdom Guys are up here praying six hours a day, and they don't yet qualify. How dare I judge my brother that he's irrelevant to the kingdom of heaven and God's plan? So he said, what do you pray about for six hours a day? I'd like to know that too. I don't pray six hours a day either. The guy said, well, from now on, for the rest of my life, Every single day, I will pray for you. 
since I know you now. (laughs) The man has a list of every person he knows. And he prays for every single one of them every day. I want to get on that list. I told Jeff, take me on the next trip. Get me to meet that man so that he can pray for me. (laughs) I grew up in a church that whether my mom intended to communicate it or not, and in the church itself, my Sunday school teachers, my grandma, whatever, I don't know whether they did this intentionally or accidentally, but it was definitely in our church culture that we were the only right one. That oh, I grew up in an independent Christian church, and even the Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ, which we were a branch off of, they were wrong because they did not understand baptism and instruments the way we did. And and I can remember I, as a real young kid, I was I was pretty informed on why the Baptists were wrong, and why the Catholics were wrong, and why the Pentecostals were insane and uh, fake. And I remember as an eight or ten year old from the back seat of the car, I asked my mom, "So, mom, what's wrong with the Nazarenes?" That's the way I worded the question. I didn't ask, what do the Nazarenes believe? I asked, what's wrong with the Nazarenes? Because that's what I had picked up, was that if you weren't part of our church, you might be all right, and maybe, sort of, kind of, you might be a Christian, but you're definitely wrong in your understanding of what we know is true. Whether we mean it or not, we all take our preferences and our expressions, and our spiritual gifts, and we make that the truth. And we judge other people's expression of faith, that they may be real Christians, but they don't know what I know. They don't have the full gospel. What an arrogant word to use to describe a church. If I throw out terms, whether you know it or not, you have definitions to these things and people that you think reference that. If I said spirit-filled, which is a very common term amongst charismatic Pentecostal churches. If I said spirit-filled, you have a definition of what you, maybe it's unconsciously, maybe you've chosen it, but you have a definition of what you think it means to be spirit-filled. And it's this group over here and not these groups. I have actually completely thrown that term out of my vocabulary because it's so arrogant and divisive. But if you, if when you think of charismatic or spirit-filled, you think of Todd White or Bill Johnson or Sean Bowles or Sean Foyt or whoever these famous names are, but you don't think of some missionary in the backwaters of Africa giving his blood, sweat, and tears to bring people out of demonic bondage or some jail minister in the penitentiary system who is loving very, very, very difficult men to love, they don't have the Holy Spirit like we do because he's a Baptist or he's a Catholic. That's some pretty serious judgment. If you hear the word faith and you think, oh, that's Kenneth Copeland or Kenneth Hagin, that's Word of Faith Church. They're the ones that have faith. Other people don't have faith. We got a problem. If when you think of worship, you think of specific style of worship, you may have your favorites. Absolutely. That's totally fine. My all-time favorite is Misty Edwards. No, no competition. I mean, she just, she does it 
for me. She, her songs, her writing just blow me out of the water. But, you know, she's got a certain style. She's from a certain stream. Kim Walker-Smith may be your favorite or Jonathan and Melissa Helzer or whoever it is. But right now, who's rocking my world is Matt Marr and Audrey Assad, and they're Catholic. Both of them. Hardcore Catholics. And they are full of the Holy Spirit. And their lyrics and their worship is anointed stuff. I'm a little late to the Shane and Shane party, but I love Shane and Shane. They go to a Baptist megachurch in Texas. They're not charismatic or spirit-filled, but they're filled with the Spirit. There's a, a Swedish pastor named Ulf Ekman, and that is probably not a household name in Northeast Oregon. But Ulf Ekman is one of the leaders of the body of Christ on the planet. He is probably one of the top ten most influential men in the world, in the church. He has a church in, he did until a few years ago, had a church in Uppsala, Sweden, and Kiev, Ukraine. And they were the two largest churches in Europe. He's a word of faith man. He was Lutheran. He got rocked by the Holy Spirit, put on the floor. He's talking in tongues, preaching faith, and healing. And, and so he left the Lutheran church and became a word of faith preacher. His church is called Word of Life. And both of them are pushing 10,000 people. He's on the board of Dr. Cho's church in South Korea. That's the largest church in the world. He's on the board of a church in Singapore. That's the second largest church in the world. I mean, this guy is a mover and shaker and a definer in, war, in global Christianity, especially Pentecostal charismatic Christianity. He is a powerhouse man. His name is Ulf Ekman. Several years ago, he was on a Holy Land tour, and he's in Jerusalem, and he's wandering down a back street by himself, praying and meditating, and he meets an Orthodox priest with his ridiculous-looking hat and his fancy garb, and he's got his gold censer there, and he's walking down the street, chanting the chant he chants every day, chanting the chant, spreading the incense. And he said, I'd, it was unconscious, I didn't do it on purpose, but I thought... Wow, I am glad my faith is so much more active and meaningful than his. I'm glad my faith is not that empty that I pray the same prayer, memorized prayer every day. He said, the Holy Spirit put me on the ground. How dare you judge your brother? How dare you judge the meaningfulness of the faith of your brother? You could not be further apart in the kingdom of heaven than an Orthodox priest and a charismatic word of faith preacher from a megachurch in Kiev, Ukraine. You, just, you couldn't get for, doctrinally, style-wise, you couldn't get further apart than that. And Jesus said, don't you dare judge his faith. It put him on a journey of repentance that included researching what does the Orthodox Church believe? What does the Catholic Church believe? What does the Lutheran Church that I was forced to leave believe? And I don't know how long it took, but it ended in, three years ago, him resigning his position of a pastor of 20,000 people, and he joined the Catholic Church, converted to Catholicism. I'm not here to say that that was right or wrong. I have no idea why he did it. I have no idea about the people he left and how that rocked their world and all. But his response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit was so broken and so humble that he resigned. Like, I can't do this if it's going to create that kind of pride in my heart. So again, I, I'm not here to tell you that, that 
he did the right thing or not. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that God took him on a, mi- a mission, a journey to show him that the church is way bigger than his church. The church is way bigger than his stream, his denomination, his expression. The truth is that we, and I mean that with a capital W, we meaning the church worldwide with a capital C. The church worldwide, we need, we all need each other. And we need the different expressions of who Christ is. I'm only talking about people who name Jesus Christ as the only Son of God and the Lord and the only way to eternal life. I'm not talking about any other groups. But inside of that, inside of the real Church of Jesus Christ, we need each other. We need the churches that emphasize the sacraments. We need the Catholics, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, who put their emphasis on the Mass, on what we call the Lord's Supper. And on baptism, this is participating in the mysteries of Christ. This is how we become one with Christ. But we also need the churches that we call evangelical, that, re- that emphasize the word. This is the word of God and we must obey it. They put a fence around the flock and say, if it ain't in here, we don't do it. We've got to have the churches that guard the word and define what is true and what is not according to the word of god and we also have to have the churches that emphasize the holy spirit because it doesn't matter what traditions we go through and what we believe if there isn't any life in it hello we've got to have the sacramental churches we have to have the word churches we have to have the spirit churches we can celebrate our uniqueness as a congregation here course love this church we're your home church if if you're visiting wherever you're from god bless you love your home church and you can have your preferences and your gifts and your specialties and we have the things that we believe that make us a church family and a congregation and so i'm not at all saying we all have to be the same i'm not saying that but we can appreciate our differences and we can love people that are different so because of how i grew up in a church that was super exclusive and super judgmental of other churches. Then I went to college in the Church of Christ, at a university of the Church of Christ, the non-instrumental Church of Christ. And I don't know why I went there, neither Sarah and I knows, other than the leading of the Lord, because we're not from that group. But we got there, and my freshman Bible professor, my first semester, told me I was not saved because I was baptized in a church that had a piano. Because they believe it's a sin to have instruments in church. If you're new to Christianity, you have no idea how divided we are. It is crazy. Okay, so I got told I wasn't saved because I was baptized wrong. Like, uh, maybe it has a little bit to do with faith. Rather than getting where I got wet. But anyway. Okay, so I went to, Sarah and I went to school in a super judgmental denominational school and then the church we joined was spirit-filled god rocked our world changed us completely it was amazing but it was also super exclusive and my parents actually thought i joined a cult because if you'd left this church you kind of got ostracized and it was fantastic for where i was and what i needed but looking back on it from the outside i can see a lot of failures and a lot of problems as with any church okay so but when Sarah and I moved here in July of 99. We went back and forth between a couple of churches. We visited a church here in town, and the whole sermon was on why we are right and everyone else is wrong. It was grotesque. Uh, right here in La Grande, it was like, we are the best church, and, and everybody else needs what we have. And Sarah and I could not run away to our pickup as fast as we could. Uh, and we came here for the first Sunday, and Joel Bender 
was up here leading prayer, and he was praying f- to bless the other churches in town. And my heart had found a home. <laughs> like, oh, oh, yes, this is what I need. Not suspicion and hatred, but fellowship and blessing. And it was wonderful. Because of all of that history, when I came here, then I went through a phase where I became very judgmental of the divisions of the church. I was judgmental of judgmentalism. Come on, you've all done it too. You get mad about something out there in the world and you become just like it. I decided that we that any division in the church was wrong. Why can't we all just be adults? We need to all meet together in one place. We need to get over our differences and just worship together. And we don't need 17 pastors and 17 congregations in Legrand. We just we why can't we just have a team of four or five pastors that lead a church and we can all get along and let's the whole body of Christ let's worship together. This is stupid. This is infantile. Let's just get along. And we could get so much more done if we would unify. Now, I believe that that is also satanic. It is a Tower of Babel human unity that I was looking for that we could get more done and we'd have more money and more unity if we would all just agree. Because anytime somebody wants to control what you believe and think, it is satanic. You have a right to express your faith how you want to express it. And anytime we unify to a degree where there is a Uh, A mega church where a group or even one pastor gets so much influence, there's always sin and corruption that come in. How many mega church pastors do we see fall to financial sin or sexual sin over and over and over again? That's the way the world does things. They want to assign groups of people to unify around thought. Well, all of this race must think this way. All of this sex must think this way. All of this location must think this way. And it's satanic. That's what racism is. Is to think that everybody in a certain group is like, is, are all alike. Well, we Christians aren't supposed to be alike. We're supposed to have differences and disagreements. It's actually God's plan. We're not violating Jesus' prayer when he prayed that we would be one. We're not violating that by having 17 or 25 different church meetings this morning. As long as we're not judging each other. Hello? It's actually the way God works. When humans tried to unify in a human way to build the tower, God had to destroy it because it was wicked. It is actually God's plan that he has his church camouflaged in smallness. I don't want you to be able to, with your own numbers and dollars, to do my work. I need you to have to do it by faith. Every small intercessory prayer meeting, every small congregation, every little old lady who's praying through the night, every person who's out there struggling in faith and doubt and pain and I need money and I need more time and I need more help, that is what God has in mind for His church so that it is accomplished by the power of the Spirit and not in a human unity power. And it totally keeps corruption at a minimum. When we have churches of 50 and 100 and 150 rather than 10,000. Of course there's corrupt, sinful, evil people leading small churches. But it keeps it at a minimum. Because there aren't nearly as much dollars and influence going along with it. So what I saw in scripture was that Israel in the Old Testament was one nation but 12 tribes. 
And every tribe had its own territory and its own fathers and mothers and their own expression of who they were. We are the tribe of Dan. We are the tribe of Judah. We are the tribe of Issachar. But God required that they unify for two reasons. He said, four times a year you will meet in Jerusalem to worship me together as one nation Israel. And if one tribe is attacked, you will all go and defend it. That is his plan for the church. That we are one nation, but we are divided amongst lots of different congregations. But when one is attacked, we all go to war. We all start fighting. The battle of prayer and love. And and when it's appropriate and necessary, we worship together. Because we are one holy nation. I went through this process of being at first very judgmental that everyone else was wrong. Then I decided we all ought to think alike. And now I understand that the unity of the spirit that we are called to is not unity of thought. It is not unity of expression. Those are satanic. It is unity of fellowship, unity of the spirit. That we love each other, that we care about each other, that we take care of each other. That's what Jesus was praying for in the garden, that we would be one. Let's look at this in scripture. Galatians 2 8 to 10, Paul is writing and he says this, For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So here's Peter, Paul, and John, and James having a meeting, and James and Peter and John realize they are called one direction, and and Paul is called the exact opposite direction, but it's still one church. Hello? Come on, they give each other the right hand of fellowship. We don't think anything about shaking somebody's hand, but in the ancient world, they never did that. You did not shake hands unless you were pledging your life to support that person, kind of like what we would call blood brothers. You know, kids, you know, cut their hand and shake hands. Well, we're blood brothers now. And they spit on their hand and shake hands, you know. James and John and Peter, when Paul says they gave Barnabas and I the right hand of fellowship, it is them taking hands and saying, we are one with you, but we're going the exact opposite direction. It is one spirit, but a different call on your ministry than ours. And the things that James and John and Peter had to preach to the Jews would have been completely different than Paul and Barnabas going into Gentile cities and idols, temples, and synagogues, the way they would approach ministry, the things they would talk about, the the problems they would have would be completely different. The cultural expression of a Gentile church became very different than a Jewish church. But it's all one Christ. Hello? So this church unity that I'm talking about this morning is not a libertarian live and let live. It's not like, well, you do your thing and I'll do our thing and we'll just, we'll get along. No, it is the right hand of fellowship. It is we support you. We love you. We pray for you. We will give money to your church instead of ours. Whatever that looks like. And those of you who know you know, the history of our church, we've given money to lots of other churches because uh, I really want to put our money where our mouth is. We don't just talk church unity, but that we pay for their building. And we have done that. So it's the right hand of fellowship. It's real, deep, honest fellowship, love, care for each other, taking care of each other but in opposite directions. Next scripture is 1 Corinthians 12. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to one, each one for the profit of all. There's different gifts and different ministries and different activities. We are all worshiping the same Jesus. We are all in the same Holy Spirit. 
Again, the line I'm drawing is the real, true Church of Jesus Christ, the churches that are actually naming the name of Jesus and obeying him. We'll get to that in just a minute. But those of us who are real Christians, we're all one, even though there is vast differences. Vast differences. Sometimes differences that might seem like it's not able to overcome. Like, I don't know how I could agree with a Catholic on that topic, or I don't know how I could agree with a Calvinist on that topic. If Jesus is Lord, we can be one in the Spirit. Romans 14 says this, Accept him who is weak in the faith, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. Another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. This debate in the early church came from the fact that most meat was sacrificed to an idol. There weren't butcher shops and safeways in those days. Uh, you got your meat from what had been sacrificed to some idol down the street. And then they sold it outside the temple. And there were some Christians that said, I can't eat that. It's been offered to an idol. And Paul says there are Christians who, for that reason, are vegetarian. And then there's others that eat it, and they don't have a conscious problem. Neither one of you judge the other one. So replace vegetarianism with any other issue that divides us as Christians. Do not pass judgment on each other on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. Another man's faith, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who's the him? Both of them. There really aren't doctrinal vegetarian issues anymore except with the Seventh-day Adventists. They, they have more issues than just meat. They, you know, they, they have to meet on Saturday and, and we, the rest of the church, meets on Sunday and so on. And there's some huge differences there. Paul says, do not judge them on disputable matters. If you have to see their faith is weak, fine. But whatever you do, you do in faith. Whatever they do, they do in faith. If it's in real faith toward Jesus Christ, it's totally acceptable. No matter how crazy it may seem to you. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Memorize that sentence. Memorize that sentence. That is actually the verse that came to Ulf Ekman's heart as he walked by the Orthodox priest. And he thought, I'm glad my faith is not empty repetition and meaningless tradition. And the Holy Spirit said, who are you to judge another man's servant? Who's the other man? It's Jesus. We do not judge anyone else's faith when they are actually obeying Jesus, even if that obedience looks completely different than how I would do it. We do not judge them. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. He will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That is an awesome verse. He will stand. No matter how crazy or weak-faithed or wrong you, we may think other doctrines and expressions of faith are, or how much they're missing on what they could have, he will stand. Jesus will make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. There are some non-negotiables. There really are. If there's nothing that would divide you from anybody, then you're not holy. Because that's what holiness means, is that you are set apart. So I asked myself, and I asked the Lord, what are the non-negotiables? And really, the list is super, super short. They had a whole apostolic conference about this in the book of Acts. And all of the apostles met, and they're like, what, what actually are we going to require of these new Gentile believers? Do they have to follow every rule in the Old Testament? What is actually required? And they only came up with three things. Do not worship any other god. Do not eat or drink blood. And no sexual sin of any type. That was it. You mean the list doesn't have any comments about predestination? Or baptism? Or why the Pentecostals are crazy? Or why the Baptists are wrong? Nope, it doesn't. Surely it says something about not following the Pope. Nope, it doesn't. You cannot worship any other God. You cannot eat or drink blood. You cannot sexually sin in any way. That's it. For people who name the name of Jesus, there is no law about how we express that faith. So the sacramental churches choose to express it by taking the Lord's Supper that they call the Mass or the Eucharist and they make it the center of their service and everything they do is about that. Yay, God. Other churches, the sermon and the presentation of the Word, the teaching of the truth is the center of what they do. Yay, God. Other churches, it's run around and flop on the floor and celebrate the Holy Spirit. Yay, God. As long as Jesus is Lord... Yeah, God. You cannot have any other God in your heart. Anything else you live for. You can, I, I don't know about eating and drinking blood in our culture. It's not really a big deal. But sexual sin sure is. No sexual sin. Those are non-negotiable. So what is non-negotiable? Really, it's, it's, it's that. It's who is Jesus? Is Jesus actually Lord and Master and the only Son of God, the only way to eternal life? Is he your savior? Is he your number one allegiance? For individual believers or churches or denominations, that's, that's the number one question. So we cannot have fellowship with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses because Mormons will tell you that Jesus is the brother of Satan and Jehovah's Witnesses will say he's one of many gods. We cannot have fellowship with that. Unity is unity in Christ. If they're not in Christ then there is no unity. That's what holiness means, is you draw a line somewhere and you separate yourself. Who is Jesus? There are other churches in history that have claimed to be Christian, but their allegiance was not to Jesus the Savior. The church, the official legal church in China called the Three Self Church, they have to pledge allegiance to the Communist Party before Jesus. They're not following Christ. They've sold their soul for political salvation. The, church, the Lutheran church in Germany during the Nazi years did the same thing. They all swore allegiance to Hitler instead of Jesus, while still calling themselves Lutheran Christians. But they swore allegiance to Hitler. 
the Catholic Church did it during the French Revolution in the 1800s. The uh, Russian Orthodox Church did that during the communist days in the USSR. They sold their soul for political salvation because they didn't want to cross the governing authorities. So number one is, who is Jesus? Is he actually the Savior of the Lord? Is he King of kings and Lord of lords? There is no other allegiance. There is no other worshiping God. And the other non-negotiable is biblical morality. Are we obeying what Jesus and the Bible tell us to do? There are lots of people who call themselves Christians, lots of churches and denominations that are falling like dominoes in approving sexual sin. Any church that ordains homosexuality is not a Christian. They're not Christian churches. They've lost the plot. They've totally dropped the gospel. We can't have fellowship with that because they're not in Christ. The good news has to be true for it to be good. If it's not true, then it isn't good. We need churches who are setting people free from sin, not telling them they're okay in sin. So, of course, we can love Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and anybody else that opposes us. Of course, we do. Absolutely, we do. That's the only thing we're called to do. But if they're not in Christ, we don't have fellowship with them. So there are some non-negotiables, but in Christ, there is no judgment of someone else's faith who names the name of Christ, but they express themselves as a Catholic or Pentecostal or whatever. We can have all kinds of debates about how we take the communion or mass or whether it's grace or faith or whether it's baptism or faith or whether it's the King James Bible only or any of the others or whether it's wild charismatic displays or whether we should have order and quiet in church and and we can have debates all day long about food rules and these disputable items but there are issues in the scripture that are absolutely indisputable you just you can't sensibly argue that God allows that so there are churches that think it's a sin to have musical instruments well let them think what they think we but we better know why we do what we do right the Amish and the Mennonites have some hang-ups that I don't have but I love them they're awesome people I know a few of the Mennonite families in Cove, and they are a great group. I've been to their church services numerous times. And when I walk in, I get weird looks because they don't get visitors very often. One time I went completely by myself. I was the only visitor there. And, and they had invited me, actually. They sent me an invitation card. They sent all the pastors in the valley an invitation card. I was the only one who came. And then when I showed up, they act like, what are you doing here? Because <laughs> I think they'd done it before and nobody showed up. They didn't actually expect it to happen. So I showed up and because I want to create church unity. I really do. And I love them dearly, the ones that I know. I love them. And I'm for them. And I support them. And I want to join them. And hopefully, you know, they will not judge us either. I don't know whether they do or not. It's not my place to figure out whether they judge me or not. But people who are sincere in their beliefs, they can be sincerely wrong, but sincerity deserves respect. I'm not in any way saying we can't have these debates and and even arguments about it within the church. I'm not saying we all need to think alike. I'm not not saying that. I'm saying we can respect people's honest, sincere faith, even if it is really different than ours. Inside of Christ. we got to be humble about what we think we know. Because Paul says, if you think you know anything, you don't know anything. 
Anything you think you understand, that is precisely the thing you don't understand, is what God said. Because if we drew a line and here is God, and I know that we can't put a beginning and an end on God, but if we just define God as this, this is all of God, this is the fullness of everything that he is, this is how much we understand. And we've got a hundred different denominations in there arguing about fractions of millimeters. Well, we've got more of the spirit than you. Well, we've got more of the truth than you. Well, we've got the correct expression of worship. Well, we understand this issue better than you do. And we've all got this much to learn. And we're in there fighting about this. Have the debates. That's fine. It's not wrong to think differently. It's not wrong to believe differently. And have those debates as long as we are one. In spirit. In goodwill toward each other. We can't really know... God in his fullness so we better have some humility when we're dealing with somebody that is very very different than us if Jesus Christ is their Lord and they are honestly obeying him without perverting his word they are our brother and sister online it can get really nasty just don't even go there just if you want to take a bowl of popcorn and go to the comments section then Fine, but it is grotesque. The judgment and hate and manure that gets thrown by people claiming to be Christians and understanding God and they're, oh, it's just horrendous what goes on online. So again, I want to make very clear, I'm not saying this libertarian live and let live. Well, they can, the Catholics can do what they want and we'll do what we want and the Baptists can do their thing. I'm saying we need to strongly support and love each other relationally, financially, with prayer cover for other churches. When another church is having trouble, we ought to go in and pray. And we have done that. Um, uh, it's, it's an appreciation for differences, while not at all being hesitant at all to say, I know what I know, and I believe what I believe, and I'm not going to be shy about it. But we cannot go in, even though we may know some things in the Holy Spirit that other people don't yet know or or have rejected we cannot go in thinking we have more of the holy spirit than you do we go into any relationship asking what we can learn not what we can throw in their face i need to draw this down one other thing i want to say is that this this uh unity is not just horizontally between all of the different denominations, between Protestants and Catholics or whatever. We've got lots of churches that we differ from right now today, but the, the unity and the honor we must have for the church also just goes backward 2,000 years. The Holy Spirit did not show up on the planet when you came to Christ. The Holy Spirit did not move when Bill Johnson became a pastor or whoever your favorite guy is. Worship did not begin when your favorite worship leader started leading worship. All right? Now, in church history, we've got some really bad stuff that has happened. Some gross stuff has, has happened. Wars have happened because of doctrines between Catholics and Protestants. All that stuff, it doesn't mean we have to hide from historical facts and truth, but honor your fathers and mothers. I mean from 1,200 years ago. We, do not, we don't judge them and think, well, we now have arrived at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You all had some truth and you had some serious hang-ups, but we have gotten rid of all those hang-ups and we now know the truth. 
we have the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of the spirit. And we got just as many hang-ups as our ancestors did. The church of Jesus Christ is 2,000 years old, and it is global. The church is not American. The church is not Baptist. The church is not charismatic. The church is not African or Southeast Asian. It is all of that. Hello? We've got to get away from our thinking that what I believe is the truth and everybody else needs to line up with that. We've got to get away with, get away from our church is the hot thing and the other churches in town just need to get with our program. And we have got to get away from, we have got to get away from, we have the Holy Spirit and the Catholics and Baptists don't. We have our stream, we have our appreciation, we have our fathers and mothers and our teachers and our stream that we love and we know they're right and we're in strong faith about it, but so are they. Even denominations across international lines and ethnic lines are completely different. The Baptists that Jake and View work with in Myanmar and Thailand would not, rep- would not recognize Somerville Baptist Church as being Baptist. We've got to get away from labels and thinking that everybody who belongs to a certain group thinks a certain way. That is racism. You're all alike, so you have to think alike and be alike, and we're going to label you. It's gross. Even within the church, we do that. That, well, all Catholics are Catholics. No, there's a huge difference between a Latin American Catholic and a European Catholic. Big, big, big differences. And in every church around the world this morning, there are people, including in this room, there are people on their way to hell, and there are people on their way to heaven. In every single church. If the Orthodox believer who goes and prays the same prayer every day, every day of their life, if they're doing it with real faith in Jesus Christ, they're saved. And there's Catholics going through the motions and they don't know or believe a thing. But the same is true in every charismatic and Pentecostal church too. They come for the show. They come to run around and feel good, feel a presence, but they don't have any faith. And then others may not feel a thing, but they mean it. They mean what they sing, and they say yes to what they hear. Faith is the answer. Faith is the key. It's what makes everything alive. Not tradition, not expression, not gift, not activity. Faith. Who are you to judge another man's servant? Let them have their faith to Jesus and stand or fall on that. We will be the ones who pray for unity, who work for unity, who love our brother and create unity not of thought, not of expression or style, but of unity of the spirit, unity of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.